0: Whether it's running, hiking, biking, golfing, or even working, Curex insoles can help your patients live healthy and active lifestyles. Using the latest medical and biomechanics research, Curex insoles are engineered for unequaled comfort, performance, and injury prevention. With its patented dynamic arch technology that enables the ideal ratio of flexibility and rigidity. Curex insoles properly support the foot and its natural movement for ideal knee and hip alignment. And because no two patients are alike, Curex offers a full line of highly customized insoles available in high, medium, and low arch profiles. Learn more about the science behind Curex and sign up for a free sample at medical.curex.us That's medical.curex. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Whether you work in elite sport or with so-called weekend warriors, you'll know the challenges of managing data, whether that's data from clinical assessments, athlete self-report, wearables, imaging, opinions from coaches, from parents. How do you make the most of all of this information available to you about sports injuries while you focus on building a strong trust relationship with the athlete? Dr. Nicol Van Dyke brings his trademark innovative thinking and practical advice to JOSPT Insights today. We draw on Nicol's extensive experience as a sports physiotherapist and clinical researcher to walk step-by-step through simple solutions to diagnosing and managing hamstring injuries. Nicol shares his advice honed over years of working in sports and sports medicine research for how to navigate complex injury problems without getting overwhelmed. Dr. Nicol van Dyke, welcome to JOSPT Insights.
1: Thank you, Claire. It's great to be here. It's
0: great to have you, Nicol. You've been on my podcast guest list for a while, so I'm glad to have nailed you down for an interview. And people will know you for your innovative and forward-thinking work on injury risk, how we think about and communicate that risk of injury, but also that age-old question of whether we can really identify the individual athlete who's going to get a hamstring injury or going to get an injury broadly. People will also know your work at the Aspatar Sports Medicine Hospital in Doha in Qatar, and you and your colleagues there have really led the way on best practice in managing hamstring injuries. So today what I'd like to do is blend those topics and look at what you characterize as a simple approach to a complex problem. So let's start by talking a bit about what you see as making a hamstring injury a complex problem.
1: Maybe we could start with what does complex mean? So w- w- how, do, how do we define any complex problem? And if we compare it to, let's say, a simple problem, usually there's a pretty recipe-driven solution, right? So if you want to bake a cake, there's the ingredients you add in, there's a way to do that. And they pretty much come out, like if you do that all the right way, they pretty much come out just the same, right? Like you, you know what to do. Then we have complicated problems that really requires a lot of difficult processing and, and things to fit together. A good example, I think, of a complex problem would be <laughs> would be the weather, right? So there's so many different things that play a role in whether it's going to rain tomorrow. But the nice thing is that we have really simple solutions for something as complex as the weather, right? You either take, put on your raincoat or you don't, or you use your umbrella or you don't. And sometimes I think we forget that even though we can have really complex things, they can have simple solutions. Now hamstring injuries are, are no different, um, um, because there are so many different interacting factors that can contribute to the injury being sustained. But then also what that injury looks like, how it behaves, how it responds to treatment, and then ultimately how the player will return to sport. I think what makes hamstrings complex is that by their nature they're influenced by a multitude of factors in different contexts by different individuals, and that that ultimately leads to decisions in how to manage them uh, best. But I will say that I think we have a few really nice, simple solutions that can be very beneficial to the athlete and therapist.
0: So let's get into some of those simple solutions, and we're not purely talking about treatment solutions at this point. We're talking about simple strategies for the whole process, right from diagnosis through to return to sport and return to performance. And we're going to use this hamstring injury case as an example, but I think I can be so bold as to suggest this is is an approach that's going to work for musculoskeletal injury or sports injury broadly. It's not a hamstring specific issue. This is a way of thinking about how you plan an approach to diagnosing or to treating, managing, helping an athlete return to sport, right?
1: Absolutely. As clinicians and as practitioners, we're faced with this almost daily. And we do follow this evidence-based practice approach, whether we kind of like it or not. We we read the literature, we follow work of good scientists, we incorporate that into our intuition, our past experience, the players' experience, and our judgment around certain factors. And then we come up with a, I would say, an information-driven solution. And if you understand the components of that and how you can best uh, incorporate those different components in your thinking, the how we do things becomes a lot simpler.
0: Great. So let's think about this hamstring example. Now you're working for Irish rugby and let's imagine that one of the Irish rugby players comes to see you with what you suspect is a hamstring injury. They're pretty common in rugby. So how do you keep things straightforward and not get overwhelmed by all of the information, all of the thinking that goes into managing what we've just said is a complex problem, a hamstring injury? So I'm thinking of things like, you know, how do I elicit the information that I need to make a good decision? or to help the athlete make a good decision? How do I manage that relationship? How do I build the trust relationship? What about all the wearables and the the data that the athlete's coming to see me with? The imaging, do I get imaging, do I not? There's a whole lot of things going on. So let's start to break some of this stuff down. What's the simple approach to diagnosing the hamstring injury?
1: I, I think everybody listening will feel some sort of this, right? And especially if you're a early career collision, or if you're just getting going, this feels at times overwhelming. So I think the first thing to say is, and this is back to the old Stephen Covey seven habits, is begin with the end in mind. I think if you understand where you want to go at the start, it's a lot easier to incorporate to information in, in that process. So at the very start, let's ask the athlete to, to help us understand their experience of their story and what this means for them and their expectation setting. I think it's really important to take your time. We all know the stats. Doctors are terrible and interrupt their patients in about 10 seconds. Physios are slightly better at around 30 seconds. And I think there's some really nice work in the pain science literature that if you just let someone speak for three minutes, you cut down your your assessment time by something like 20 minutes. So there's real value in, in us allowing the athlete to help us navigate through their experience of it. I think we wanna move away from data-driven approaches to data-informed decision-making or or approaches. So we do have a lot of uh, information we can gather now. I think really early on, try and get a good understanding of what the athlete is experiencing. And then uh, for muscle injuries, we're really still, still doing the same thing we've done for the last 50 years, right? That's look, listen, and feel. And so observation of the injury, injury mechanism, if you can, Listen to the athlete, um, we've talked about that, but really actively listening to the athlete and then your op, your objective measures. Now, I, I have to say, when you're starting out, you're doing like a really wide spread of things. You might still consider those as you grow into your practice and, and, and as, as you grow as a practitioner, but then you start to narrow down to the things you really need to pay attention to. Muscle injuries like strength, length and function, but it's understanding how to nuance and adjust those for an individual or for um, what your, the clinical presentation you're faced with, that's really the, the tricky part. And that comes with some experience or it helps frame our assessments. Imaging is always going to be tricky. Like, look, at the elite level, we're so, we're so privileged, right? Like we can image almost every injury we see. That could be a devil in disguise at times because we, we become over-reliant on what an image says to us. And then we still have to remember that there's a person going through a clinical experience with us. If something isn't behaving the way you expect it to, then that's that's a, let's pay attention to that. If there's a pain behavior that seems odd or a presentation of some of those tests you're doing that just feels a little different. And I'm not talking about red flags, right? So we all can we can all remember our red flag system. But if there's anything out of the ordinary, I would, I would start to ask those questions. And if that continues, you know, that that's that's probably like a nice way to say, like, hey, let's just have a look and see if we need to do, dig a little deeper.
0: So, that could be the case where you start to suspect central tendon, for example, if we come back to our hamstring example, something that's behaving outside of the typical biceps femoris kind of grade two strain.
1: That's right. I mean, Anna Fanamada did a really great paper on uh, avulsions that might ha- hide behind early signs, right? So, they usually are full length, the bruising is absent, it only appears a few days later. So, just pay attention to like that clinical picture evolving over the next first week and going, oh, that doesn't look doesn't look like I would expect this to behave if this was a typical grade two injury, and then the central tendon involvement has got a lot of attention. We're also paying attention to t junction injuries now, but just thinking about where the injury occurs that might change the behaviour of the clinical presentation.
0: So let's pick up on the rehabilitation planning and that kind of incorporates return to sport as well. If we think about return to sport as a kind of continuum that's starting from the time that you diagnose the injury, how do you apply this sort of simple thinking approach to planning a rehabilitation program, progressing, monitoring and also building in your return to sport advice?
1: Yeah, we we had that question so often when when I was still working at Aspatar, what's your return to play criteria? They have to go and actually mimic a football session. And before that, they have to do all the integrated mo- movements of a football session. And before that, they have to run fast, before that, they have to get strong. And then we get right down to the first assessment, really. So, yeah, this was this great paper from the Burn um, meeting uh, back in 2016. I don't know if you remember it, Claire, where um, a, bunch of, a bunch of good authors told us, like, hey, listen, we need to think about this as a continuum, and that really has become the truth for me. I, I think there's no there's no set criteria where if this happens, you're okay. There's a host of criteria you have to meet throughout the rehabilitation process. And then at the end of that, when you return to sport, and this is the hard part, right? We've got really good data from work by Rod Whiteley, from Peter Blanche and Tim Gabbard, Arnold Weingenstein, have athletes really done enough to get back? Arnold actually showed us that re-injury risk is really high early on. that that feeds into that question right like has the athlete done enough by the time they go or we say they can go back now that's hard to answer like in general because at elite sports once you're ready to play you want to play and the coach wants you back and there's loads of pressures we're going to try and negotiate that with the player the coach the team Mm -hmm. but if we're thinking at the beginning of your rehab how do you how do you figure this out If the very important first question is, what's the goal of my rehab? What am I trying to achieve? Are we trying to change pain? Are we trying to create tissue adaptability or or, uh, capacity or capability, right? So are we changing the capability of the athlete? So I think once you understand what you're trying to do, you can apply whatever loading strategy you want. What is the goal of your rehab, right? Once you understand that, I think it's easy to apply a strategy to achieve that. And then moving through your rehabilitation, understanding the criteria to meet. And I like the idea of a criteria-based progression. Although I have to give uh, Evie vangbeek and Eric Witfro's group some credit here as well, because they've refocused our attention to muscle injury history, right? Or timelines and the natural evolution of, of biological healing. Some really great work as well from Abigail Mackey and Michael Kiar, like certified geniuses from Denmark, who has shown us that Actually, the healing continues to happen at 30 days. We know most hamstring injuries are back by by three weeks, right? So the really nice message for us is that doesn't mean our work is done. So wherever the athlete goes back, we're still making sure that the tissue gets what it needs to perform at their optimal level. From the start, understanding the goal of your rehab, understanding where the athlete needs to go. And then this is key. And if I had to sum all of that up, rehab is training in the presence of injury. So what, how do we meet our training goals while the player is going through rehabilitation and whether they return to sport early or late, have I done enough in terms of loading, in terms of tissue adaptation to make sure the athlete has what he, he or she needs to, or they need to return to
0: sport? So let's say you're working with a rugby player with a hamstring injury and she's in this rehabilitation phase. What's the What does the training in rehab is training in the presence of injury in terms of loading look like for her?
1: We can actually put the muscles through quite a lot. Now, initially, of course, we, we're making sure that the, the healing tissue gets what it needs, but we're also really conscious of return to running at the earliest possible stage. If you meet the criteria to return to run, you start running. Uh, for us in Aspidar, that often meant day four. Work from Australia has shown that they they some they sometimes started with low, uh, with um, eccentric work, even Nordics, really early on. So it's really about understanding what's optimal for, for the athlete. So let's say in our situation, what we do is make sure we monitor strength, length, pain, and then some sort of function. So single leg bridging, single leg stance, Really, really basic functional movements. We're not looking for quality necessarily at the start. We're looking for the ability to do it. Those early on measurements acts as a baseline for us to then progress from. And we often compare it to the other side. That's still a fair comparison, I would say. Now, what you want to do is use rehabilitation as an opportunity. So make sure you do a real holistic assessment. Don't ignore their adductors. Don't ignore their lumbo-pelvic movement. Don't, don't ignore their trunk rotation and, and mobility. Use rehabilitation to address any of those issues and make sure that we're not ignoring the other strength measures that's usually important for our athletes while they're going through their rehabilitation. Now, if you know what the athlete needs to go back to, as in, let's say, the match demands for high-speed running. So how many high-speed running meters does an athlete do during a game? Let's say for a field-based sport. So just in terms of volume. And they can start working progressively towards that. If you have an extra bit of time at the end of your rehab, so let's say an extra week, it often benefits you in terms of re-injury risk. So what we want to do is have that early on baseline of really like those basic measures, check them regularly, and that influences the treatment or the, the rehabilitation program. So that actually helps us to decide what content goes into the, uh, the, the uh, treatment plan and by midway through your rehab session, you really are doing proper training sessions that you should, if you're seeing your athletes every day, by day three, you should be seeing a training effect. Right? And if you're not, you might ask the question of whether we're training hard enough. I know that sounds strange for rehab, but it's not.
0: So now let's move on to this idea of preventing injuries, Nicole, as the sort of final piece in our simple thinking to approach a complex problem and I want to package this with how you address the athletes' concerns as well as I think concerns about re-injury are really prominent for many athletes. So talk us through a little bit how you think about this when you're working with athletes at Irish Rugby.
1: We can think about injury prevention in general, right? So we have our, traditionally we call it our three tiers of prevention, primary, secondary, tertiary. And so you think of primary prevention as something prior to an injury, something the group gets to try and absolutely avoid what's going to happen. Secondary, as in monitoring. So can we pick up stuff before, like maybe subclinical signs or symptoms that we know we can address? And then tertiary being rehabilitation. We actually have pretty good evidence that we can be preventative in terms of a tertiary nature. We we saw it in volleyball in Norway, and we've seen it with hamstrings in Qatar. That if we do a good job in rehab, we prevent injuries. Another great group from, another great study from Denmark, Monica Bayer, showed us that as well. If you start early with your rehab and you do a good job, you can actually address some of the re-injury concerns as well. For us, we want to make sure we are giving athletes the opportunity to be in a position where they can participate in matches and training with maximal effort all the time. That's really what we mean when we're in an elite sport, right? We want to be able to train as hard as we can so we can play as hard as we can. It's the same when an athlete's been injured. Whatever we're doing to improve their robustness, we're, we're doing while they're injured, and they get some of that as they continue back into their robustness program. Now, some of that is exposure to load, and we need to manage that. Some of that is neuromuscular strength, force velocity capabilities, all those components of what a regular training product would look like. In terms of re-injury, we make sure that the athlete is getting back or better than they were before the injury and that we've addressed all those components through a rehabilitation process um, as they move back into their regular training. It is hard to navigate the fear of re-injury, especially when an athlete has gone through a spell where they've just had a bad run, right? And then also, I think pain can be really deceptive, especially with hamstrings, and Laura Mumosley did a fantastic BGSM podcast where he talked about helping players understand pain behavior. And so it's like sunburned skin, right? When you're getting back. And so when, you, when you're in the shower, the nobody made the water hotter. Um, the water the same temperature, but your skin's more sensitive. And I think that often happens with muscle injuries. The, the tissue is just a little more sensitive to load. And so we feel something there. Now we, we definitely um, want our players to pay attention. But we don't want them to create any sort of nefarious or catastrophic kind of expectation around that. So we really do a lot of work around explaining that feeling someone that's normal, having a bit of anxiety about going back is absolutely normal, and then showing them, and this is where data sometimes becomes really useful, right? So here's where you were, here's where you are, here's your strength, both sides. Having that whole picture to be able to present to the athlete, and then being really open with them about how they are experiencing that. I think that's, a, again, a big component of how to navigate that initial period of return. We want them to return to performance. So getting back to play is one thing, but getting back to play at the same level, at the same intensity, giving the same performance, that's, that's something different. And so we have to make sure we're helping the athlete navigate through that final part of the process, even though we, we make sure we have all that objective data, we really want to make sure that the athlete is engaged in how they return. Often, athletes will surprise you. It's that old adage of, if you, if you speak to someone long enough, they'll tell you what's wrong. And if, they'll, if you speak to them a little bit longer, they'll tell you what they need to fix it. And so I think that remains true. Even at the end of rehab, the athlete will tell you, like, man, if I just had another session, you know, or I'm good, I'm good to go. Like, I really feel confident. So I think it's really important to engage athletes in that process at the end. And, you know, it's it's the kind of listener you are as well. You know, if we're downloading information, we're just like making sure we absorb stuff. Factual is like we're fact-checking and making sure that we think what's right is happening. We can be empathetic, and that's really important to get into that that's, that empathetic nature of of understanding what the athlete's happening. But, but when we become generative in our listening, we're actually opening ourselves up to the athlete, telling us stuff that we just don't know and changing our understanding of a problem or the way forward, that is a fantastic space to be as a clinician because, you know, sometimes you'll use the same wonderful analogy that's worked like so well for one athlete and for the next individual, it just fails. So I think it's really important to keep ourselves humble in that process and really listen in a generative way to what the athlete is saying.
0: Yeah, and I think that loops us back beautifully to where we started with this whole idea of giving the athlete space to speak and to then actively listen and take that information on board. And as you say, not simply take it on board from the sense of checking the boxes in your mind of what I've got to do and is this matching what I'm expecting, but listening and interpreting and putting pieces together, drawing connections and helping the athlete make those connections for herself or for himself is sort of that next level of, of expertise in clinical practice. I
1: mean, you know this, right? Like, and we hear this from from our mentors, from from expert clinicians all the time. It's all about relationship. It's got to start there. and, And the biggest thing there is trust. So if we're able to establish that trust relationship, you then make sure you have engagement from the player, from yourself. Like make sure you're engaged in the story. There's goal clarity. We have mutual agreement about what that means and where we want to go. The content, the what we do is actually just a little bit on top. So if we can get our athletes to a place of discovery, if we facilitate that for them, and we're not making declarations about whether or not they can play or whether or not they're strong enough, help them navigate through that space. It's really interesting how different people go through rehab in different ways. And there's this real sense that some folks really see it as an opportunity. It's really an opportunity for them. And it's integrated in sports. We we continue to have this false narrative that injury is somewhat separate from what we do. As athletes and then you go back to what you do as an athlete after injury it's part of what you do and that's that's why i think we've got such a nice or, or successful approach now is that we have that integration and that while your rehab is training in the presence of injury return to sport happens at the beginning of your rehab and it's a continuation of what you do as an athlete i think that's so important and helping the athlete discover that for themselves will just set them up for a really long and prosperous career
0: Nicole, I think that's a great way for us to finish our chat today. I want to say thank you for sharing your clinical expertise, your knowledge of research that you've contributed to in a ton of projects. And you know, thank you for bringing this innovative thinking and challenging us all to do better as clinicians and and sharing those experiences and those ideas of how we can think about working with athletes in a different way that's going to help us all take our clinical practice to the next level. Thanks for joining me on JOSPT Insights today.
1: Thanks for having me, Claire. I'm really pleased that I I got the opportunity. And um, a little birdie told me that JOSPT is at six on on the impact factor. So, um, hey, congratulations. That's fantastic news and wonderful to be part of this community. I, I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights.